0: I really think it was to some degree a breakdown in communication and an effort on the part of people in power or people trying to make money to polarize us you know whether it's the media or whether it's politicians that that they were able to to hold more power in keeping people apart that's what this book is about it's the intersect of all this stuff happening and making people really angry and reactive. This book really tries to figure out how this all happened and what it looked like in the Western United States.
1: This podcast is made possible by Utah Humanities as part of the Utah Center of the Book's annual Utah Humanities Book Festival. We aim to highlight authors and writers that will be coming to the 2023 Utah Humanities Book Festival and beyond. My name is Case Johnston, manager of Utah Center for the Book and the author of the memoir Beyond the Grip of Cranial Synostosis, two novels, Let the Wild Grasses Grow, and Castaway, forthcoming June 2024. We record this podcast on Historic 25th Street in Ogden, Utah, inside the Monarch Building, and it is produced by Brandon and the Banyan Collective. So today we are interviewing Betsy Gaines-Quammen, and we're going to talk about her new book, True West, which is dropping this fall. I don't have a hard copy of it. I have a PDF of it, which I'm really, really actually quite sad about. I like to hold books in my hands, and I like to show them to everybody listening. Uh, Betsy Gaines-Quammen is a historian and writer who examines the intersect of extremism, public lands, wildlife, and Western communities. She received a PhD in history from Montana State University, an MS in environmental studies from the University of Montana, and a BA in English from Colorado College. Betsy is the author of American Zion, Cliven Bundy, God in Public Lands in the West, her forthcoming book, True West, Myth and Mending on the Far Side of America is due this fall. And that's what we're going to be chatting about today. So welcome, Betsy. Thanks so much for joining us. We can't wait to have you here in Utah, and we will put all of the dates and times and venues in the podcast details when this is released. So please come see Beds. We're excited to have you back in Utah uh, this fall.
0: Well, thank you. I'm so glad to be here and I'm so excited to be in Utah this fall as well.
1: So this new book, when's, what's the official drop date? Do you have an official drop date?
0: Yes. It's uh, coming out October 24th.
1: Okay. Okay. So you should, you won't, I don't know. I don't think you'll have copies. Well, well you'll have copies at, the, at your readings.
0: Yes, I and and in fact I will. It it it's I've already gotten boxes of them, so they arrived early.
1: Oh, good. Oh, so there will be copies at the events to be signed, and and uh, Betsy will be reading from them. So this new book. So I jumped into this new book. It's been about a week, and I went really really quickly because a lot of it to me. I mean, I'm I'm from the West. I'm from Utah. Grew up here, non LDS. So I mean, Utah's an interesting. An interesting place to grow up, and the West is an interesting place to grow up, and Ogden's an interesting place to grow up. But you know, we could keep going, you into it. no, um, so, um, but it was, it's, I love it because you know, there is a perception, there is a perception of the West and what drives the West and what drives people to the West and what has driven people to the West for th- 200 years. And so, Betsy's book really delves into the mythology of the West and the decisions that people make. Based on that mythology... Decisions people have made for hundreds of years and decisions people are still making today based on that same, those, those myth- multiple mythologies of the West. It's a great book. You'll read it really, really quickly. And like I said, we can't wait to have Betsy here in October. So Betsy, okay. That was a lot of me. Um, and I'm going to shut up for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> We're, I have some things. So I'm going to start with some things. Okay. Uh, these things are words and terminology that I learned from your book that, I I just kind of like would sit back and, you know, I just, I was just really intrigued and our, you know, it's one of those things where you go grab your wife and you say, we got to talk about this word, you know, and this word, the first one that I want to talk about is white and delightsome. This was com- this terminology, this phrasing. And this was when within the, within the chapter about Escalante, Utah. So this is a really intriguing history that I didn't know before. And Brandon, I asked Brandon before the, Podcast if he'd ever heard it, he'd never heard it either. can you delve into where this comes from and what it what it means?
0: yeah, so this was something that I learned when I was doing my dissertation, uh, this idea of white and delightsome coming from early church theology, early um uh, Mormon church theology, and it was the idea that in converting indigenous people which in the Book of Mormon, uh, the the native population are considered Lamanites, and uh, the Lamanites and the Nephites were the two tribes uh, in the in the Americas that were uh, in conflict with one another, and uh, and there was an idea that the early Mormon people held that believed that in uh, converting the native population in the Americas, that they would become white and delightsome. They would actually become white people. And so that was, as I said, something that I I wrote about in my dissertation in looking at how the uh, early Mormon people viewed um, their sort of move to the great basin and how that impacted their relationship with the, uh, indigenous people there. And it's something that, um, you do hear about. I, it, it's something that the church no longer ascribes to, but it is something that, that comes up from time to time because it's such a weird and awful idea.
1: Yeah. And, and it's really, and it plays into, and I mean, can you speak really quickly on how, you know, this plays into the narrative of the larger mythologies of the West? And this is kind of like our way into looking at, at the book at the, as, as a summary.
0: Yeah. Okay. I, I do think that this particular belief plays into the mythology of, quote unquote, winning the West or conquering the West uh, again, I—it's I, a—it's a awful idea of coming uh, in and and converting a population to embrace uh, this belief, and in doing so, become a, an entirely different race. Uh, so I think it—it it really does. It's foundational to the way that that um, the West was considered, you know, it, it, in terms of. A conquering, um, a a converting, uh, assimilation—you uh, know these these ideas that really were motivational to white people who came west uh, in order to win it.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting. And I mean, the terminology is white and delightsome, right? And that's that it, that belongs to the LDS Mormon history, but, but the, the idea behind it really isn't theirs. So, I mean, it's not, it's, you know, I mean, this is, this goes back to the Spaniards uh, going West and, you know, converting to Catholicism and, Mm -hmm. conquering. I mean, this is, while they have the terminology, while the LDS faith might have that old terminology that they no longer ascribe to, it's nothing new, right? I mean, it's, and it goes into this idea and you quote it in the book about what, and I forgot the quote, I should have written the quote down, but you might know it, about what the Pope said at the time about going West. The the Pope actually had something interesting, like a, a phraseology. That kind of talked about that
0: yeah well um and and i i actually would need to <laughs> i should have read it, it um but i but i think that that uh what you are referring to it, it's the uh um, papal bull the doctrine of discovery uh-huh. and it it what it says it this is um oh gosh it was in 1493 that there was an idea that when christians went to lands populated by non-christians they could discover it Mm -hmm. and therefore they could take control of it so it is it does have a history way before uh lds people came west Mm -hmm. It, it was the idea that christians with their superior religion could go into lands and take them and convert local populations and it was enough of a sort of gift to convert people to christianity that that would somehow justify or or you know sort of i guess justify is the right word in their eyes um the taking of lands and um and so yeah you're absolutely right this is something that that has been done by european uh colonialists for hundreds and hundreds of years
1: yeah it it it's intriguing to us because being utahns being westerners that kind of thing and where the where this kind of terminology pops up and it's you know it's it's not that long ago i mean no truthfully none of this is that long ago that's the that's the interesting part so i mean in this place and this is kind of weird, just kind of tackling that that myth of of religion and christianity and moving west and and discovering and converting and all of that kind of stuff, but there are, there are other myths that you really jump in into in the book um, that are part of that Western mythology. That are I mean, are they all are they all kind of religiously based, or are do you, can you separate something like manifest destiny that you talk about in the book from that kind of religious Christianity um, movement West? Can you, is it possible?
0: That's a really good question. I mean, I I think that. I I think that it's completely tied up in religious beliefs. And uh, I I do think in terms of the way that America was perceived and also the West is that it was God given. I mean, with the with LDS, this was something that Joseph Smith prophesies that that uh, going to the land of Zion. So that, of course, was in Missouri. Actually, it was in Ohio, Missouri, Illinois. and then it was taken west. And so the idea of the Latter-day Saints uh, coming into the Great Basin, the Colorado Plateau, uh, they brought the idea of Zion with them. But just as you were mentioning earlier, these ideas were not solely um, embraced by uh, the LDS population. I think in Manifest Destiny, it was this idea of, of, settling the west as a homeland uh, as a god-given land and um and that i think really is tied up in the way that these these christian beliefs sort of were in, were embraced and implemented and put, you know, taken to These lands in the West. So that's a very jumbled <laughs> response no, to your uh, question. <laughs>
1: no, it's perfect. I mean, because, yeah, it's perfect. Well, there's, and the truth about it too, to our listeners, when you pick this book up, is there's a lot in there. This is a book that has a lot of research, it has a lot of personality. Uh, Betsy's done an amazing job, like, in which we're going to talk about in a bit, I hope, of weaving in her own voice with her own interviews with the people that she meets with the research that she's done for, for quite a while now. Um, and so there's a lot there and the, and there's no real, there's no real pulling apart between who we are or, and Betsy can, can talk about this, but who we are as researchers, writers, and also chroniclers, 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 <laughs> chroniclers, is that work? Chroniclers? Chron- yeah. yes. Chroniclers of of history and current history. So looking at that, first I want to like talk about something else that I didn't know, another term that I didn't know. Looked it up and and learned a lot from the book, is this whole kind of the American redoubt movement. Um, this is new to me. I mean, this is really new to me. I mean, I knew I knew about, you know, of course, we all know about like these small pockets of, I don't even know how you would define them, pockets of, not, they're not Christian militia, right? Christian def-
0: nationalist homelands. What's that? Christian nationalist homelands. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, I mean, can you define the American Redoubt for us and kind of take us a bit through why it's been, why it's taken off kind of since 2011? And then you, and also you actually sat down with the gentleman who wrote. Who started it? Is that correct in the book or no? Uh,
0: no. no, huh. Yeah. Uh, that that was, uh, I think, Rawls. Rawls, is his name. yeah. And no, he's hard to, to, hard find. to get home, yeah. Um. Well, let me just kind of, if it's okay, I, I'll kind of talk about why I wrote this book a little bit and yeah. and will make it into the American Redoubt. This is a companion piece to American Zion, which mm-hmm. was about the Bundy family and uh, the motivations that have taken them to the Bundy Ranch. That was the standoff in Nevada in 2014. And then the takeover of the Oregon uh, Wildlife Refuge, Malheur. And that was in 2016. So I met the family in 2015 between their actions. And at the time, I felt like they were really outliers. And what we've seen in the last handful of years Is what uh writer Todd Wilkinson has called the bundification of Mm. the West. And I would even argue the bundification of America. Mm. I I think that we saw that on January 6th, uh during the insurrection at the Capitol. So this book, in it, it it was my my sort of take on why this is all happening and why the West plays such a big role in. The radicalization of the United States um, during the Trump years, but the seeds were there before the Trump years. So in looking at what has happened, I, have I, I, in addition to looking at militia maneuvering and the building of white nationalist homelands in Idaho, I, I looked at how people are moving west and what are the motivations uh, for for their move here? I mean, I, I think we saw a lot of um, COVID refugees. We saw we're seeing climate refugees, even though we're on the forefront of climate change. I think people have romantic notions about the West, but also the West, and in particular, Idaho, but it's also spilled over into Montana uh, and Oregon and Washington there is an idea that this is a place where people should come to await an impending civil war and this is something that's been promoted by any number of of figures uh the latest is the american redoubt and uh and that is a movement where people who are conservative um, christian nationalists mainly white are moving into mainly white communities and the, there, this is we're seeing it quite a bit in uh, in and around Court d'Alene. and I don't know if you recall, but Court d'Alene, right around Court d'Alene, there was a, a place called Hayden Lake, mm-hmm. in oh my gosh, was this the '90s? Um, and uh, and it was owned by a man named Richard Butler, who was a um, uh, he he had the Aryan Nations and. It was a neo-Nazi uh, compound, and uh, he was actually run out of town by the local people in Coeur d'Alene, and um, he was bankrupted. The The Southern Poverty Law Center sued him. The property was acquired by a man named Greg Carr, who is this wonderful philanthropist in, uh, in uh, Idaho, and it was given to um, a college in Idaho as a peace park. And what we've seen since then is there have been so many people who have been motivated by this this American Redoubt story that this is the place where you come and prep for a conflict uh, with the government, uh, this is a place you'll be um, safe. This is a place that you'll be around like-minded people. And also, uh, there are actually real estate agents that specialize hmm. in finding properties for people who have this particular ideology. Hmm. So it's really been uh, um, something that's been intentional. There, There is a situation right now uh, in uh, um, Coeur d'Alene where the Idaho Freedom Foundation and again, they're they're all over Idaho. They're not just in um, North Idaho, but uh, but they've been permeated, um, or rather, uh, excuse me, uh, the Republican Party in Idaho has been taken over um, to to a large extent by um, extremists. And uh, and as I said, it's been done in a very intentional way. It's been years in the making, and I have been lucky enough to meet some moderate Republicans who are working really hard to take their party back. But right now, uh, I would say that the party is really being held hostage by folks who have this particular ideology um, that that's being sort of marketed by this American Redoubt movement.
1: Yeah, that's a great answer. I, you know, to me, maybe it's just a bubble thing. You know, maybe it's a thing that I don't, you know, that I, this stuff is so new to me. I mean, I mean, I knew that, you know, I knew that there were groups on the periphery, but to hear that there are real estate agents that really kind of focus on this to put people in specific places based on these ideologies. Again, I mean, it's, it's, it's surprising, right? It's surprising that it's happening on such a uh, purposeful level or a purposeful agenda But, you know, and again, we've seen we've seen this type of stuff, you know, throughout our history as a country, uh, you know, where people will move certain places to be away from other people. And but this to me, the whole Idaho, because you say in the book also, like you just said here is Idaho is already probably one of the most conservative states in the country. And to have the the extremists say that they're that the the rest of the conservative Idaho is not conservative enough. Um, as you know, and the book is really quite scary uh to see how it's just expanded so quickly within what would you say, a decade? Was would you say a decade?
0: Well, I, I you know, I'm I'm thinking of yeah, it it had it had the elements. I mean, I, you know, we we know that Ruby Rich happened in Idaho, and then the Aryan Nations was in Idaho. Uh, people have been looking at Idaho as a uh, a place to to um, sort of cultivate this movement. But uh, I really think it accelerated. Oh, gosh, I they've been working on it for a a couple of decades, Mm -hmm. I would say. And um, but, you know, things people moved west at a great clip during the pandemic. And, uh, and you know, that, that's when I spoke to Ammon Bundy, who uh, I really felt was going to make COVID protocols and some of the, you know, I, I mean, for example, Brad Little uh, issued a shelter in place uh, order at the beginning of uh, the pandemic. He was the Idaho governor. He's a very conservative Republican, but he was, um, Hugely unpopular to these sort of radicalized anti-regulation folks, and he became a target uh, in in Idaho politics. And Ammon Bundy ended up running for governor against him as an independent. He was initially a Republican. The Idaho Freedom Foundation supported Ammon Bundy. He actually got twenty percent of the votes, which is remarkable. And when the COVID sort of the, when pandemic happened, I talked to Ammon Bundy on the phone, and uh, I I really felt like uh, this was going to be his kind of next Malheur, and it and it ended up being something that he used as a central campaign. He fundraised off of it. He uh, re- his profile uh, emerged. I mean, a, a, as a participant and one of the architects of the Malheur Wildlife Refuge, he kind of risk falling into obscurity uh, after that issue. And he didn't, you know, he was he was in jail for two years, but he didn't serve, he, he was acquitted in Nevada. And I'm uh, oh, sorry, it was a mistrial in um, Nevada and he was acquitted in Oregon. And so this was an opportunity for him to emerge again. Uh, I think he really likes being in the spotlight. But when I talked to him, he, was not embracing the the conspiracy theories that that we were seeing emerge in and around the 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 virus. He, he he didn't think as many people were dying of covid as was being reported, but he was not involved in QAnon. And and so I'm answering this question all over the place because as you say this this book is about so many things, yeah. and and COVID was an accelerant, and so QAnon was the movement that people were embracing. That there was, you know, some person named Q who was going to save America from deep state, and it tied into all these weird uh, beliefs, like the or excuse me, the Democratic Party and uh, Hollywood were pedophiles and in any case, what happened over the course of two years is Ammon ended up getting very involved in QAnon uh, hmm. sort of thing and most recently, he has been sued uh, and, and in fact the the hospital was awarded fifty-two million dollars. He was sued for defamation because he talked about a hospital in Boise and the staff there being involved in a pedophile ring and um and child trafficking and this kind of thing. So he he really um he became a figure in Idaho and he had quite a following. And he started his own uh, vigilante group called People's Rights Network that got very, very involved in uh, COVID, uh, you know, fighting COVID safety measures. And uh, and then he ended up um, being involved in this protest at um, St. Luke's Hospital in Boise, at, where they shut down the emergency room and ambulances had to be diverted uh, to other hospitals. So he really. Uh, took a a strange route through COVID. And that was reflective of other issues going on in Idaho. Idaho really was a place where you saw this, as I said, it had been in the works, but that was a rapid acceleration of radicalization.
1: Yeah. And like, I think you, you note know in the book that originally when you talked to him, you didn't think that this was a hot topic for him. But then it was his want of that spotlight that pushed him, or other people too, right, who expected him to be a part of this, pushed him in that direction towards you know, kind of in the end where they shut down the hospital and they all of that kind of stuff that his original intent wasn't there, but the movement kind of the movement kind of took him with it, yeah, or did he take I, the um, movement yeah
0: i I would say that that's that's an interesting question um. I the, the the medical freedom movement, which was you know mm-hmm. anti-vax and this sort of push not to impact businesses, to let churches uh, have congregations meet, to to you know they were burning masks and and this kind of thing, and I I think that that QAnon and mm-hmm. um, the anti-vax movement really sort of intersected. I mean, I, that that's what this book is about. It's the intersect of all this stuff happening and making people really angry and reactive. And so, you know, right before the January 6th, I was watching um event, uh, and it wasn't right before, it was actually in October, uh, before the vote, I was watching, uh, I was streaming the the Red Pill Expo, which is a big uh, event of conspiracy theorists, uh, anti-government folks, and people who are prone to to I, I mean, I, I you know, I, I'm trying to think of an example. This was Stuart Rhodes, who is now in jail for um his role in the January sixth event. and he started the Oath Keepers. He was on stage with, uh, oh gosh, Wilkins. What was his name? He's he, um, he directed the, the documentary Plandemic mm-hmm. and he which was which was um one of these big conspiracy theory uh, movies about the origins of COVID and and what COVID really was. And he and then they shared a stage with a guy who is very, very um certain that the planet is being led by lizard people mm-hmm. and then at lunch there was a movie called the titanic never sank mm-hmm. and so i was watching all these folks intersect uh you know in space i mean social media but also this was in person this was held in jekyll island uh georgia i believe and um and so they were all getting together and i think it was the this intersect of all these various um disgruntled activated people that that really precipitated so much of of the unrest and and you know and violence and and then add to that the layer of black lives matter so so there was also this this idea that Antifa and um, these protests were breaking out in urban areas and there was a uh, there were people who were showing up with guns or are, or in, in some cases, starting militias to combat all the things that were going on at once and um, and I think that's this book really tries to figure out how this all happened and what it looked like in the Western United States.
1: Yeah, and it does an amazing job. And it starts at its roots. It starts at the roots of what these myths are. Going west, looking at that, it's it's going even though they they it, it can be discovered and it can be conquered and it can be taken. And the and the crazy part about the book, it's the great part about the book, not the crazy part about the book, crazy part about people. Great part, great part about the book is showing how this has happened, how it has happened in the past, and how this mythology still permeates, uh, permeates people today, culture today, we have about 10 minutes. I, I'm so glad that those questions got you chatting because I don't want to hear me. Uh, Brandon doesn't want to hear me. Nobody wants to hear me. Um, but I, within the next, like we're going to pivot. So, um, today I just want to let everybody know today we are talking with Betsy Gaines Quaman about her book, True West, Myth and Mending on the Far Side of America. And we, we talked briefly about how you talk to Ammon Bundy, and you've done that in the past, obviously for the the first book, you know, to me, I'd like to talk, I'd like to chat about the writing of this thing, you know, the writing of the, or both books, because the way I read it, and this is just my personal opinion, as a journalist, you seem so fair to so many, so many people that you interview in the book, where it would be easy to sit down with somebody in a cafe, listen to ideas that are probably, and I'm not going to say they are because I'm not going to speak for you, probably much different than your own Um, ideologies that are much different than your own, but then there's a fairness in the pros and to them. And I was telling Brandon before we started the podcast that you would sit down with folks and then you would give every single time something compliment, complimentary, something fair about these interviewees talk about that. And then the idea too, that this is books like this, I think are brave. You know, I think books like this are brave where, you know, you're talking to people, they gave you access. That's one thing. And then secondly, you're exposing truths. Can you talk about, you can jump in anywhere you want there. I'm sorry. That was the longest question in the world. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I, I, I appreciate can...
0: that um, very much. I think I realized that during the last few years, especially when Trump was still in office and then pandemic happened. And I myself was caught up in anger and incredible frustration. And so this book really was it was my attempt to find out where people were coming from, because there are people who i I think got so uh, wrapped up. I mean, I, I we all were to a certain extent, we were siloed and we were angry and um and and things were politically polarized. and so i I know that they're bad guys. There really are yeah. bad guys. and out you say there. that in and the book.
1: some people should not be listened to. That was, yeah. that was yeah yeah yeah, but and I, people, yeah. So
0: I'm I don't, I don't I wouldn't want to give the time of day to white Christian nationalists. I mean you know there's there's some awful people. Yeah. However, I think that what happened is that there were people who were not hearing the full story that were being indoctrinated, and that worried me because I I there was an accelerant that happened with pandemic, and so it was my goal in looking at this book and and working on this book to understand where people were coming from and to really say, and I believe this, that if we are in conversation with our neighbors or we're, we're working with them in our community, we're, we're reading about them in local newspapers, which are, you know, disappearing, there's going to be less uh, of a likelihood that communities are radicalized and and so i i really think it was to some degree a breakdown in communication and an effort on the part of people in power or people trying to make money to polarize us you know whether it's the media or whether it's politicians that that they were able to to hold more power in keeping people apart, and um, and I found that in talking to people, there there are, as I said, there are bad guys, but that I met people who had been wrapped up in narratives that once you kind of scratch the surface a little bit, you really did find a, a commonality, a, an ability to to communicate, and um, you know more nuance than than we had been allowing ourselves to see, or, or maybe we had been, you know, not even paying attention to it or, or ignoring it or what have you. I mean, social media is not nuanced. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's really where we had been getting our stories, particularly when we were, you know, sheltering in place. So, so this book is my attempt to go back out and, um, look at, look at relationship building. And, uh, and I, I met people who were very different from me politically that I, one in particular, I became really good friends with and, and, um, you know, I treasure my relationship with this rancher in Eastern Montana and, uh, and his family. And, you know, it, it was, it was a fun book to write, even though it was a stressful book to write.
1: Yeah, how long did it take? When did you get started? And what was was there a moment where you said, "I need to write this"? Or was was this building during all that time you just talked about?
0: Oh my gosh, uh, I don't. You know, when I wrote my first book, I said I will never write another book. It's, it's so hard to yeah. write books. It is, and uh, it's, it's funny because my husband David is also a writer, and I I would just say. David it's so hard to write books and he'd say really oh I didn't know that that's oh thank you yeah. for letting me know that so yeah. um but uh but no I I think that um when pandemic happened I said well maybe I'll write another book and then um I was going to write an anti science book mm-hmm. and that became so weird like the idea of anti science because our idea our our notions about covid were were changing every day I mean it just it was an ever evolving thing. And I thought that's, I can't write an anti-science book. So I thought, well, why don't I write a book about how the West is looking at the multiple layers of, you know, COVID polarization uh, and, in you know, the, the housing prices, I, I mean, a, a climate change, um, how are we navigating it amongst our own myths? And so that's, that pretty quickly became the way that I started to see this book.
1: Yeah, it's a great book. Um, anybody should pick it up. You should go see, Betsy's coming to for two events along with her husband in October. Uh, the details for those events will be in the details for the podcast, venue, date, time. One thing though, is there's a difference between me and you as, as writers. Um, one is my first book was creative nonfiction, research-based, traveled the country talking to doctors, neurosurgeons, all that kind of stuff. And after that book, I said, I'll never write another nonfiction book again. See, I keep my word. I kept my word <laughs> to <laughs> to myself. Um, uh, the rest is just fiction. It's just fiction now. I'm just making stuff up. Um, Betsy, it was absolute pleasure talking to you today. People are gonna love the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Please come and see Betsy during the Utah, the Utah Humanities Book Festival 2023 this October. Uh, thank you again for writing the book and thank you for joining us.
0: Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. I've really, really had a great time.